Amen. Bow your heads, please. Father in heaven, I pray that the Holy Spirit would emphatically speak to our hearts by the word the importance of controlling our spirit, the importance of dealing with attitudes that Satan would like us to cling to that would hinder our prayer life. I pray the Holy Spirit's word would just emphatically impress upon our hearts the need to learn to forgive and go on and continue to look to your example for how we should live. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like you to turn to Matthew 5, and we're ministering on the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> After speaking about how that Jesus did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, he went on to say in verse 20 of this chapter, I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. The righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was an emphasis upon doing little things. They would tie the honest, the mint, and the common. They had ceremonial washings that they went through. They wore phylacteries on their eyes. They prayed in the streets to be seen of men. They extended their garments and on and on. Jesus speaks of this throughout the word in many, many places where he rebuked them for following after externals and not following the weightier matters of the law. He says here in verse 21, you have heard that it was said by them of old time. Now, who is that? Who is that you have heard that it was said by them? Who's the them that he's talking about? Well, the them that he's talking about are the rabbis, the religious teachers. And basically what, what would happen is that when they went into the synagogues or into the temple, the Hebrew scrolls would be opened up and they'd proceed to read from the Hebrew text. You have to keep in mind that the language of the day was Aramaic. The language of the day was Greek. There was very little Hebrew that was spoken other than by the uh, more educated, enlightened, or more educated uh, individuals, much like what it would be in the kind of the dark ages where your Roman Catholic priests were able to read from the Latin, but it was not the, the language of the people of the day. And so... It was the religious leaders, it was their responsibility to make sure that people received the truth, the whole counsel of God. They, the common person didn't have a Bible like we have that they could carry around, they could read at home and learn from it. Like, like our sister said this morning, praise God for the simplicity of the Word of God that we can just read it and understand and take literally what is there. You know, too often I found where people try to, they, they, they take something that is said and try to come up with another interpretation to what was there. And you got to take a double look and say, man, how did they get that out of there? <laughs> you know, God did not write the Bible to uh, college-educated geniuses, but to the common people, us. And we can just praise God for that. 
And that's kind of what was happening here is that the religious leaders, the scribes, Pharisees, the rabbis would stand up and they would read the scripture and then after reading it they would make some kind of a comment which people then would, would follow. So what they would do is on the important things of the Decalogue, the, the, the Ten Commandments, you know, they would say, for example, thou shalt not kill. But how many people were involved in committing murder? I mean, it's like today. I mean, when you think, you know, to stand in church and say thou shalt not murder, I mean, who are you really talking to? It wasn't like they were dealing with a... Uh, a tabernacle, you know, a, um, a temple full of criminals that they had to really exhort all the time not to go on out and murder someone. So there was not much emphasis put on those things. They put it on other things, uh, the things that I already mentioned. And Jesus came along and gave the deeper meaning of what was there by saying, he went on to say, you've heard by, you've heard it was said of them of old time, thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother Rakah shall be in danger of the council. And whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hellfire. So he went to the root of the problem. He knew that anger would lead to hatred and that hatred would lead to uh, possibly physical harm. He knew that what God was looking at, his father, who was, was wanting us to deal with the, the deeper inner things in the law. Um, you know, when we said that we're free from the law, we're not free to violate the righteous principles of the law. We're free from the letter of the law and, and the law as far as uh, keeping the letter, trying to get righteousness from it. Romans 3 says, uh, concerning the law, Paul raised this question, do we make void the law through faith? He said, no, we establish it. We uphold it. The law is righteous and good if a man keeps it righteously, the Bible says. And to keep it righteously is to find that deeper inner meaning to the letters that to the letter that was there in the old, everything in the old is in the new. This is why you'll see when Jesus speaks about anger, lust, the oath, and so forth, he gets into the dinner deeper inner meaning. So when it comes to the subject of of murder, of killing, he dealt with the things of heart, the attitude of the heart, the controlling of the spirit. The Bible says in Psalm fifty one six that God desires truth on the inward parts. He desires truth inwardly in our heart. And so therefore we have to deal with the things that would lead up to that outward sin where it says thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. We've got to deal with the things that would lead up to that. Like the planting of a seed. A seed of anger, if it's planted, watered, cultivated, nursed, thought upon, bred upon. It'll develop and grow into a seed of bitterness and hatred and resentment. And under the proper circumstances, even physical, um, the physical end of it would come out to whereby someone could possibly get killed. So Jesus deals with it on a personal level. He says to fulfill the commandment, thou shalt not kill. He says, 
I say unto you, whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause, he's in danger of the judgment. Whosoever is angry without a cause. Now we talked about last week, we said he's talking about personal anger here. He's not talking about anger towards sin. He's not talking about righteous indignation. We talked about Mark 3, 5. We talked about Ephesians 4, 26, where it says, Be ye angry and sin not. You should get angry with yourself and stop sinning. And there's a place of being angry at sin. I mean, it should anger you in a righteous sense. Some of the things that are going on in this country. Abortion, for example. I mean, it should, to have an attitude of, well, I don't care. No Christian's going to have an abortion, so I don't care what the sinner does. Mm-hmm. Is really not taking into heart the fact that the life of an innocent baby is being put to death so that the mother and the father are not in a, in a situation whereby they're not forced to be responsible in the raising of the child. They could take the child, and there are plenty of parents around that would love to care for that child and raise that child, but no, it's just more convenient to have that baby aborted. But it should it should bother you. It should concern you. It should grieve you that killing is going on legally in the name of science, that it's not a, a true child that it comes into being at consumption, but only later on after it takes its first breath. Sometimes you'll see these billboards around that'll talk about how that a baby in the womb is sucking its thumb, it's got a heart that's beating, it's got uh, different things. And, and those are individuals putting those out there just because they're, they're angry, they're upset. It's a righteous form of anger against sin that's going on. That doesn't mean, though, that we carry it over to a personal level, to whereby we become hatred or anger some at the doctor that performs it. Take homosexuality. We ought to be grieved. We ought to be upset at the direction this country is heading. It really upsets me that, 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 that this country would even think about voting upon whether or not homosexuality is something in which two people, two men and two women can get married. I mean, not only is it tearing down the ordinance of marriage that God ordained, but God said concerning marriage, it was to be the marriage of a a man and a woman, not a man and a man and a woman and a woman. He said in the book of Romans that that thing, that was an abomination unto him. When, then, when people had that kind of thought. We should be angry at the very sin or the sin of the, of the doctrine and teaching of such a thing going on, but our attitude toward a personal homosexual is our attitude should be an attitude of love, an attitude whereby we can pray for them, an attitude whereby we desire the best for them. You know, what he's saying is that we should desire good for others, not evil, and we should desire God's glory to be upheld. So there's a place of anger toward sin, and yet not anger toward the person themselves. And that's not an easy line to draw. Think about it. Not an easy line to draw. It's there, but you've got to be very careful with drawing that line because it'd be easy just to make an excuse, getting angry at somebody, and then when somebody admonishes you about your bad attitude, use that as an excuse to say, well, I'm really not angry at the person, I'm angry at the sin. When in reality, you're not dealing with the attitude of the heart in which you're angry with the person. 
So it's not something you really want to preach every day to get angry at sin and not the sinner or to hate the sin and not the sinner. But it's still something that's there that if you're mature, you can still use it and not abuse it. But he's talking about sin here, anger on a personal note. Because he says, I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother toward a person... And then he goes on and he says that to take that added, that anger and to carry it on to whereby you are um, using it to speak evil of the individual. He says, whosoever is angry with his brother, he shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, in other words, you're starting to use foul language, calling him, he goes on to say, a fool, an imbecile, an idiot. And it's developing and rooting there. It's, it's, it's working on a, an attitude that he says what's going to happen is that you developing anger from within towards someone for something that they have done to you, if you get angry, God's going to get angry at you. I mean, that's something to think about, that God gets angry if we get angry. God gets angry. The Bible says over a 100 times, it talks about the anger of the Lord. I mean, you can take me up on this, get into a computer, punch it up, or get a concordance, look it up. You'll find all the way from Genesis on, the anger of the Lord is manifested toward toward sin. And He can do it righteously. Like I said a few weeks ago, that doesn't give us the right, but He can do it. But God is angry at sin. I mean, look at the Psalms. Look at Psalm 37, verse 8. He desires truth on the inward parts from us. And if we allow people to get to us to whereby we get angry at others and we hold that anger in, the anger, the bitterness, the resentment, the animosity, if we hold that in, all we're going to do is cut ourselves off from fellowship with him. He's going to be upset with us for not dealing with it. He's going to be upset for, for at us for not Casting it aside, dealing with it the way that he dealt with it, via the cross. Psalm 37 and verse 8. You can see many scriptures, and I just picked out a few, but he says, Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. The revelation of Matthew 5 is not something new. It's not something that uh, when, when Jesus said that if you wanted to stop killing, you deal with an attitude of anger in the heart, the Old Testament stresses over and over again that God despises people getting angry with his brother. It wasn't something new. It was just something they didn't preach. It's something they would have rather talked about other things rather than deal with things that they knew themselves they couldn't deal with and it would not be popular. Cease from anger, forsake wrath, threaten not thyself in any wise to do evil. Why? Because evildoers will be cut off. I mean, God's going to get angry if we get angry. If we get angry at others, he says we'll be cut off from God's fellowship to whereby we're not going to be blessed of the Lord as we should be. But they that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Look at Psalm 78, verse 19. There are some specifics, like I said, over a, a hundred times in the in the Old Testament, the anger of the Lord is spoken of. Here in Psalm 78, for example, 
he's talking about the children of Israel going through the wilderness. He says, yea, they spoke against God. They said, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Behold, he smote the rock and the waters gushed out. The streams overflowed, but can, and he, can he give us bread also? Can he provide flesh for his people? Therefore the Lord heard this and was wroth. I mean, the doubt, the unbelief, the negativeness, the question, questioning God's power and so forth. It's his anger that it angered the Lord. So a fire was kindled against Jacob. And anger also came up against Israel. Because they believed not God and trusted not in his salvation, though he had commanded the clouds from above and opened the doors of heaven and had rained down manna upon them to eat and had given them the corn of heaven. In other words, he had blessed them many times and for their doubt, their unbelief, their questioning, their negativeness, he got angry at them for raising that question. Not at them in a personal sense, but he was angry at that sin that it wasn't being dealt with. So that's what we're talking about in Matthew chapter 5, is that we have got to deal with anger lest we ourselves fall under the anger of the Lord. Go back to Matthew 5 and verse 23. That's what he's, that's what he's saying here. Look at it. He says, I say unto you, whosoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. Whosoever shall say to his brother, Rakal, be in danger of the council. Whosoever shall say, thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. He's just making a point. If you get angry at others, you're putting yourself in a position to whereby the anger of God can very easily come upon you. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and you remember that thy brother has ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way, and first be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer, then come and offer thy gift. The quickest way to put your prayer life on hold, the quickest way to stop it where it'll go nowhere, is to hold resentment, anger, animosity, bitterness in your heart towards somebody for what they've done. Over and over again I've told people they're not worth it. They're not worth it. Give it up. <laughs> Sometimes you say that to yourself. They're not worth it. Give it up. Amen. This is nothing new. First sermon I taught as a pastor, as a minister, was on the issue on the subject of faith. F A I T H. I taught the letters, and I know that in that first sermon I said that when it comes to faith, Mark eleven twenty five is a condition to make that faith work. Mark eleven twenty five says what? When you stand praying, forgive if any has an awe against other that, that your Heavenly Father will will hear you. I mean, that's the principles of faith. Mark eleven twenty two. 22. Uh, turn over there with me. He tells us that we're to have faith in God. We're to properly control our tongue. Mark chapter 11, 22. I just want you to read it. I know what it says. But in verse 25 is the condition, and the condition is what? Give up any anger, any malice, any animosity in your heart towards somebody that has lied about you, that has robbed you, that has cheated you, that has done damage to you, that has trespassed against you. In some way, give it up. 
If you harbor it in, your prayer life goes nowhere. And that's really all that Jesus was trying to say, was that he said that whosoever is angry with his brother for whatever reason and starts using his mouth to say rakah and develops a, a bad attitude and holds it from within, if you don't watch it, you're going to come under judgment, you're going to come under the council, you're going to come under hellfire. Stop it. Put the brakes on it. Give it up. That's all he was trying to say. Mark 11 and verse 22, Jesus said what? Have faith in God, that he is faithful to do in his word what he says he will do. For I say unto you that whosoever shall say to this mountain, Be thou removed, be cast into the sea, shall not doubt in his heart, but believe that the things which he says shall come to pass, he'll have whatsoever he saith. We know the importance of our confessional, what we say. God just said to the children of Israel in Psalm 78, because they didn't have their tongues under control, and they said, okay, he gave us water from the rock, but can he give us bread from heaven? Can he do this and can he do that? Their attitude of negativeness, the expression of doubt and unbelief from their heart, made God angry. We're not going to go anywhere in our prayer life unless we get our tongue in line with what God's Word is. And if you can't say anything more than just to say, God's got it under control, that's a whole lot better than being negative. Like I said, that woman, the Shumanite woman, whom Elisha sent Gehazi back and asked the question, is it well with thee? Is it well with thy son? Is it well in thy house? She had a dead baby that was laying on the bed. And she said to him, Shalom. Peace. I've got peace. I've got the victory. That's all that he's saying here. Whosoever shall say to the mountain, be removed, and be cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but believe what he says shall come to pass, he'll have whatever he says. You start saying, uh, you start expressing doubt, worry, negativeness. You start saying it'll never happen. It'll never happen. Do you hear what you say? Then he goes on to say, For I say unto you, therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive it, and you shall have it. But dear friends, the next thing he goes on to says. When you stand praying, forgive if you have aught against any, that your Father which is in heaven will forgive you of your trespasses. For if you don't forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive you your trespasses. You can have your confession in line. You can have your attitude in line. But at the same time, if you've got a bad attitude towards somebody because they in some way have worked against you, stolen from you, lied about you, criticized you, harmed you, in any way, you, you have just put the brakes on your prayer life. You've just shut it down. All because of what? Because of anger. First John 3. It's not the only place in the Bible. It's stressed over and over and over again. You're not hurting that person. If you hold anger in your heart, you're not hurting that person. You'd have to get into some kind of physical violence to hurt them. But you're not hurting them a bit by being angry with them and by stabbing them and by running around and saying raka and thou fool and you know basically stabbing them in the back with your ugly tongue. You're not hurting them. You're hurting yourself. 
you got to give it up. First John chapter three. Here's what he's talking about the same thing here in context. He says, verse thirteen: Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we pass from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abides in death. Whoso hates his brother is a murderer. Isn't that the same thing Jesus said in Matthew five? It is. He was trying. He was trying to say to them, "Don't your righteousness got to go beyond scribe and Pharisee level of outward manifestations and deeds toward little things." Much more is expected under grace. Let's deal with things like the Bible says, "Thou shalt not kill." I say unto you, if you're going to fulfill that commandment, it starts right at the very basic beginning with things like anger. You've got to deal with that anger and get rid of it. And so he's saying the same thing here. John is, whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Hereby we perceive the love of God because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. In other words, you know, get on the cross, if we put it in that type of, of scenario. Get on the cross. Dead men don't have their feelings hurt. Dead men don't get angry. Dead men don't hold resentment in. Dead men don't hold animosity in. Dead men don't stab people in the back with their tongues. They're dead. If we're crucified with Christ, we won't be misusing our, misusing our life. He goes on to say, My little children, verse 18, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and truth. And hereby we know that we are the truth and can assure our hearts before him. If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart condemns us not, then we have confidence toward God that whatsoever we ask we receive of him because we're keeping his commandments and doing those things that are pleasing in his sight. We've got to deal with anger, resentment, bitterness in our heart, to cast it down, to put it to death, and to forgive those that have sinned against us. Go to the Old Testament. This is something that the scribes and the Pharisees should have been emphasizing to the people of the day, but they were emphasizing things of no importance, little things, things that didn't bother anybody. But God said in the Old Testament over and over again that if we hold bad attitudes in our heart toward others, Whatever we present to God is unacceptable. He said, he talked about when you go to present your offering and you remember your brother has not against you, walk away from that offering, go get reconciled to your brother, then come back and take care of the offering. Is that some, quote, new revelation? Not at all. Look at Isaiah chapter 1. It's not a new revelation. God, how many, how many people in churches can be going into church, singing their praises, reading through the program and all the things that are there, listening to the sermon, contributing financially to the church, and on and on. And yet, if they hold bitterness, resentment, hatred, animosity in their heart towards someone for something that was said, they were offended by something that was said, offended by something that, that was done, God says all of your sacrificial living and giving is unacceptable to me because of one thing, the anger and the animosity in your heart toward that person that has wronged you. 
Listen to what he says here in Isaiah 1. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? I'm full of burnt offerings of rams and fat of fed beasts. I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. That was their offerings. When you come to appear before me, who has required this at your, your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblation. What is an oblation? An oblation is an offering. But he calls it here, he says, bring no more vain offerings. The, look at what they were giving. They were giving of their sheep. They were giving of their bulls. They were giving of their goats. They were giving of their cattle. Last time I counted those things, kind of expensive. They were giving expensive things to the Lord, and God says they're vain. They mean nothing. They're, they're worthless. Why did he say that? He said, he went on talking about the vain oblations. Incense is an abomination. The new moons, the Sabbaths, you know, they were so careful to keep every religious feast day and holiday that came along. He says, I cannot away with it. It's iniquity. The solemn meeting, I don't want that. Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hateth. See, God can get angry. And God says, I hate. We can't. But he, he knows how to do it. Toward what? Was he personally angry at some personal individual for what they did? He was angry at the doctrine, the belief, the, the custom, the tradition, the attitude in general, the sin in general. But then he goes on to say, when you spread forth your hands, I'm going to hide my eyes from you. When you make many prayers, your hands are full of blood. Your prayer life comes to stop. Bang. It's over. We cannot hold animosity, anger, bad attitudes that, that people have done to us. We cannot hold those things in and expect to be in God's blessing. Isaiah 58, this whole thing in Isaiah 58, he's talking about fasting. He says, cry aloud and spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet, and show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. They seek me early, they delight to know my ways as a nation, they did not write, they did righteousness, and forsook not the ordinance of God, they ask of me the ordinances of justice, they take delight in approaching God, so wherefore they say we have we fasted, and thou seest not. Where have we afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge? I mean, they have gone through a lot of religious things, and they've fasted to where by now they're, they're hungry, and they're seeking for help on a petition that they've got. And he says, Behold, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exact all your labors. You fast for strife, debate, to smite with the fist of wickedness. You'll not fast as you do this day to make your voice to be heard on high. So over and over again, like he says in chapter 59, Behold, the Lord's hand is not short that it can't save, his ears not heavy that he cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Well, what sins? What great sins did we do? Israel could say. 
We haven't killed anybody. Have you got the anger, animosity, the hatred in your heart? It, it can very easily lead to it, whereby it could be carried out. One of the very first in the beginning proved that. And his name was what? Cain. The Cain way is to hold the anger and the animosity and the jealousy in your heart, to whereby the circumstances were were possible to do like he did with Abel. It would result in killing. He says, your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, Isaiah 59.3, your tongue has muttered perverseness, none calls for justice, pleads for the truth, they trust in vanity, speak lies, conceive mischief, and bring forth iniquity. God's hand is not short, and his ear heavy that he cannot hear. But, if we harbor resentment, anger, hatred, malice, bitterness in our heart, we put the brakes on our prayer life. Well, gee, that's what Jesus was saying. If you, what? Well, I don't know. How's that? <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't flip it. I don't use the screen. I'm sorry. Okay. Outward service to God, I'll use the screen, is unacceptable. <laughs> if we have not an unseen love of the brethren. The Bible says, Psalm 66, 18, If I regard iniquity in my heart, what? The Lord will not hear me. So it's plain. If you have any hurt, you've been mistreated, you've been lied about, you've been stolen once, someone has damaged uh, your, your reputation, what we need to do is to seek reconciliation. Seek if we if we have done something, we should go and seek reconciliation. If we have been wrong, we need to learn to forgive and go on. But if we've wronged someone, if you know in your heart, if you have lied to someone, stolen from someone. You've worked against someone. You've done something wrong yourself. And you know that somebody out there is angry and upset and a, and a relationship between you and them has been severed because of something that you've done. And you know that inwardly by your conscience. Jesus says, go deal with anger. Go deal with that situation. Make it right. And then after you've made it right, come back and we'll talk about getting answers to our prayers. He isn't saying that if someone dislikes you for non-offensive reasons, I mean, you haven't done anything to them, they just don't like you. Wasn't there a country song out one time that said something about uh, I a certain person said, I'll, I'll, I really hate her, I'll think of a reason later? <laughs> something like that. You're not gonna, you're not gonna have everybody love you. That's plain. Some people are just aren't gonna like you for whatever reason. They don't like your hair. They don't like whatever clothes you wear. They don't like that you live in a better home than they do, or they don't like that you drive a, a better car than they do, or whatever reason. Who knows? I mean, I learned a long time ago that you can't be popular with everybody, and so you don't worry about it. You know what I'm saying? 
I had a man write a, write a letter to me, and he said he had some sincere questions about some doctrines that that he wanted me to answer, and he was looking for some sincere answers. And so I answered him. And then he came back with after, and he read them, and he said, well, I'm deeply troubled by this answer and this answer and this answer. And I thought, so what? I don't care. Who are you? I mean, he might be a Mormon priest for all I know. I mean, he, well, I'm serious. He said, you believe in the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. I said, I sure do. Well, I'm troubled by that. Well, I don't care. I mean, the guy doesn't like me now, okay? So I don't feel like I have to run out and say, oh, please, what do I need to do so we can be reconciled now, peace? And you know, and you like me again. That isn't what he's talking about. You do something, for example. Maybe you owe somebody some money and you never pay it. Maybe you borrowed something from somebody and you never returned it. Maybe you lied about somebody and they found out about it. What do you do? He says, if you know that somebody out there has an offense toward you, then go get that situation straightened out. Put the ball in their court. I've always taught you that. I mean, there's a place to whereby if you know that you've wronged somebody and you go to that person and you say to them, hey, concerning this or that situation that one time came up, I apologize and I ask for your forgiveness. And if they say, I'm, I'm, I will never forgive you for that, then you go home and you pray for them and you don't worry about it. You've done what you're supposed to do. You put the ball in their court. Now you let God deal with them. But what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5 is when you go to offer up your offering unto him, if you know that there's somebody out there that you've offended and they're angry and they're, and they're upset with you and you haven't tried to get things right, be a peacemaker and go get things right. It's two-sided. We're not to hold anger from within. At the same time, we're not to be uh, to think that we can offend people to whereby they can be angry at us for something that we have done and we make no attempt to make peace. The whole key is relationships between one another. We've got to have a right relationship to one another to be able to make sure that we're on believing ground. It doesn't matter, Mark 11.25, you can exercise all the faith in the world correctly, but your prayers won't go anywhere unless you make things, make sure that things are right with other people. Now go back to Matthew 5. Let me, let me read something here, and then I'm going to start to wrap this up, because that's all I wanted to say. I want to emphasize the very fact that if we're going to get answers to our prayers... We've got to make sure that we have we are forgiving others for what they've done to us and that if we've wronged someone, that we've gone to them to seek reconciliation, to seek peace with them and forgiveness from them for what we've done in some way that we've harmed them. Now, I don't. there's a lot of questions we could raise here. Well, I did something wrong to somebody and they don't know that I did it. Should I go tell them that I did something wrong so they can forgive me? Well, I'm going to answer that by saying this. If it really bothers you and you really believe the Holy Spirit wants you to do it, then go ahead and do it. But if that person doesn't know that you wronged them, 
then it really doesn't apply to here because what he says is, he says, if you bring your gift to the altar and you remember that thy brother has an ought against thee, if he doesn't know and he doesn't have an ought against thee, then it doesn't really apply. And sometimes you'll just make matters worse by telling them. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, you know, on rare occasion, I've had a cheating husband, cheating wife say, you know, I messed around on my wife or husband. Should I tell them? Most times I've said, if they don't know it, you better be, you better just deal with that one in the Lord and not create, not create more problems. But I get, I always add to that, I'm not your guide. I'm not God. You gotta get things right with Him. You gotta pray and make that decision between you and the Lord. And if the Lord says it's under the blood, let's forget it and go on. And I'm, I'm alright with that. But, if there's somebody that there is friction and there's division and strife that is there, it's plain here. Before you bring your gift to the altar, if you remember your brother has not against thee, or we could turn around vice versa, where you're angry, verse 22, at them, leave the gift before the altar, go thy way, get reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer the gift. You make the attempt. You say, well, what if they're out of the country? Write them a letter. Well, what if they, I don't know their address. Get a phone number. How do I get a phone number? Yellowpage.com. If you really want to do it, you can do it. And you'll find that after you've done it and worked things out, you'll have a lot more peace and assurance and confidence in your faith. Now, he isn't saying here what the Roman Catholics use. Roman Catholics use this section of Scripture to justify purgatory. I'll just mention this. Because uh, I've read ministers to whereby they will try to chop up verse 22 into groups to whereby you um, progress in your sin. I'll try to explain it to him. They'll say, for example, here, I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And they try to say, this is the minor thing. You're angry with a brother for some particular reason, and if you're not careful, you're going to end up becoming in trouble with God uh, at his judgment seat, and it'll cause you to have your prayers hindered. Then he goes on and says, Whosoever shall say to his, to his brother, Raka, now you're going to get in more trouble with not only God, but the angels of heaven. They have a way of taking counsel and stretching it out to making it sound like now you're going to be in, in deeper hot water when you start misusing your tongue. And then he says, if you say, thou fool, now you're in danger of hell. And then they go on to play it out like, it's okay to get angry. You won't go to hell for that. Just don't call the person a fool. All right, and like I said, when Pauline was talking this morning, man, that's really reading a lot into that. I think he was just saying, deal with your attitude. Hello, isn't that isn't that what he's saying? 
Watch your tongue. Don't call people stupid. Don't call people idiots. Don't get so angry and upset that you start using foul language toward them or you're going to be in danger before God. That's what the Scriptures teach. This isn't some new, isolated revelation. It's in harmony with the flow of all Scripture. But what happens here is, is the next verses, the Roman Catholics teach this in a way of saying in verse 25 that um, this is where purgatory comes in. Agree with thine adversary quickly, while thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge delivers thee to the officer, and thou be cast then into prison. Verily I say unto you, thou shalt be by no means come out thence, till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. And so they say that the adversary here is the devil, and the judge is God, and the officers are the uh, angels that are in charge of purgatory. And unless you learn to deal with things, the judge will cast you into purgatory, or that is the prison, and you'll be held there until everything is taken care of. You've paid for every sin that you committed on the earth, and then after you paid for your sins, you come out. Purgatory for them is an intermediate state after death. You know, if you're not good enough to make it to Peter's Gate, you can go on, you can start out down at the end of the driveway and work your way up. <laughs> However they want to say it. <laughs> but doesn't it just say it for what it says it? It says, agree with thine adversary quickly, while thou art in the way with him. Make things right. Work things out. Come up with some kind of a solution where everybody's happy. Sometimes your adversary doesn't want to work things out. But you've got to be willing to put forth an effort from your side that you're willing to come to some kind of agreement and compromise and, and so forth. He says, do that because lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge and the judge deliver to the officer and thou be cast into prison. You know, I take that literally. If you don't, if you wrong somebody, and you don't want to work things out to whereby that wrong can be reconciled. You steal from somebody, for example. And the only way it's going to be reconciled is if you pay it back. And so you come up with some kind of a payment plan to pay it back. And if your adversary says, I'll agree with that, and I'll go along with that, fine. But if, if your adversary says, no, and you don't try to work things out with them, you may end up in court getting sued. And so all he's saying here is if you don't agree with your adversary, if you don't work problems and issues out, then don't be surprised if you stand before a judge and an officer and you're found guilty and you get sued and you get cast into prison. It's the law of sowing and reaping. That's all that he's saying. Not some purgatory revelation. I say unto you, thou shalt by no means come out thence till you've paid the uttermost farthing. So what he's saying here is, if you have bad relationships with people, work them out, deal with it. 
deal with the anger in your heart, try to be a peacemaker and deal with the attitude that they have so there's forgiveness from their part toward you. If you've cheated somebody, robbed somebody, work with that individual to whereby you can get that debt squared away and taken care of, lest they turn around and if you ignore it, you end up getting sued. It's a principle here to whereby we are to, to be honest, we're to be righteous, we're to be loving, we're to be merciful, we're to be forgiving, we're to be a peacemaker, and if we don't do that, then we're going to suffer for it. Bottom line. And he's saying these are the deeper things that we need to deal with to keep ourselves in fellowship with the Lord. Those are the things that the religious leaders ignored and followed after the outward, stupid letter principles, or the, the letter of the law, like enlarging their phylacteries, and enlarging the borders of their garments, tithing the honest and the common, and yet at the same time they forsook the deeper teaching of maintaining right relationships with other individuals. God wants us to maintain right relationships with other people so that we maintain our relationship with Him. Amen. Father, we ask You to open our hearts for a deeper understanding of the principles that are here. I've, I've tried to lay them out so that we can keep these things in mind, that You're looking for us to be peacemakers and forgiving and honest and righteous and just in what we do. If we do that, our prayer life will not be hindered. You still expect us to ask in faith believing, but any hindrance to our faith will be removed by maintaining a loving relationship with one another. Father, bless the word to our hearts. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.